Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This title may make it look like I'm a softy. 44 Happily Ever After Lane. That's a, that's a street address. Didn't you guys know that? Have you guys ever visited that spot? It's a beautiful spot. Uh, it's a study in the beauty and charm of true forgiveness. Uh, this is, like I said, I, I have these epic titles and then I have this one, which is all cushy and you just want to come up and squish its cheek. And, you know, at the risk of sounding like a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel tier, by giving it, you know, something that says happily ever after, it's like, Eric, you're not giving them the real stuff if you're telling them that we live happily ever after as Christians. No, I am giving you the real stuff when I tell you that Christianity is truly the only way to find happily ever after living. However, where we find it isn't the way the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel tells us to find it. It's not found in big bank accounts and Lear jets. It's not found in Mercedes Benz or Lexuses. It's not found in the comforts and the cozy uh, confines of this world. It's found in the most difficult and dangerous of locations. 44 Happily Ever After Lane. You see, it sounds like a nice, charming spot, and it is, I have to admit, but that's the way we look at it. The way the world looks at it is completely different. They don't, I don't think they have the same address, uh, and when they see what we see, they see something completely opposite. It's really a strange reality that we live in. I look at Jesus, and I see the most majestic, beautiful of all. They look, and they see something that they hold in disgust. It's a revulsion. I can't, how? How does that work? I see the life that I live and I cherish it. And they look at my life and feel pity for me. It's like, well, how could the same life be treated with two completely different lenses? And yet that's the world in which we live. When we become a Christian, when we are awakened, when, our, when the uh, scales fall off our eyes and we actually see into this other realm and we recognize what is more real than this realm, and it changes our perspective, our lens, our paradigm. And as a result, we begin to think and reason differently. Our mind is renewed. And I've oftentimes referred to it as the upside-down kingdom, where in this world, the highest position is deemed the greatest, where in God's kingdom, the lowest position here on this earth is actually deemed the highest. Huh? Uh, such is the world in which we live as Christians. Session one, meet the heavenly realtor. So the newly married couple. Now, this isn't a message on relationships. I know it sounds like it's going to be, and anyone that knows you know, the fact that I've written about 12 books on relationships would almost guess that that must be where I'm going. This really isn't about that. However, I have a mental picture, and that is the newly married couple that is freshly uh, in, that, in the throes, in the, 
in the sparkle of the I do's, is looking for that place to live. And so they, they're, they're looking around for a realtor. They've never had a home before. This is pretty exciting. And so they, they're looking for a realtor. And so if you, if you caught the, the name of this sub-session, it's uh, the, the Heavenly Realtor. So this newly married couple has a, a certain list for what they're after. And just like we do, okay, so we're Christians. And some of us are still a bit unformed, but we have, we have certain longings. And a lot of them are good. In other words, we're having them tailor-made around a new way of thinking, a new way of living. We genuinely want to please God. We want to honor him with our lives. And so we have like our list. If we're going to look about a, a home, what kind of home do you want? I want a home that is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I mean, that's good stuff. And your affinity for those, those things is showing that something has changed inside of you. That's, that's a wonderful attribute. Good job. I'm glad you long for those things. In other words, what kind of home do we want? We don't want a home full of bickering and disputes and quarreling. We've had enough of that in our life. We want something different. A calm neighborhood. You see, when we think about what kind of a home we want, most of us don't think, I want to be right in the middle of the war-torn area of the city, like, you know, where all the gangs hang out. Now, there's a few in here that think a little differently on those points. However, I'm giving you the typical married couple here, okay? You're newly married, and you want to just sort of settle into your life and make it beautiful and cozy, so calm is a definite attribute that you're interested in. No crime, no gangs. Can't you just see the list? You're giving it to the realtor, and he's looking at your list. It's like, so this is what you're after. Clean, orderly, and white picket fancy. I mean, how do you describe it? It's like, it's just sort of, I don't know, it's white picket fancy. A house that will retain its value. I mean, the worst thing you can do as a newly married couple is invest in a home that's just going to bottom out in the real estate market. And so you need to buy. And there's certain markets, certain areas where there's just no constancy of value and price. And so if you're talking to the realtor, it's like, hey, this is just our short list. And so I know you're good at what you do. So if you could sort of just take the raw materials here. Our, we have a heavenly realtor and he's attempting to set up a house for us. He's, he's introducing us in our new covenant relationship to our living quarters. And so though we have a mindset of what we're after, he knows what's best. Do you know who our heavenly realtor is? I'd like to introduce you to the Holy Spirit. The one who is interested in clarifying how life on this earth ought to be lived. So choosing a realtor. Have you ever checked out the Holy Spirit? Now, if I were to ask you, would you be interested in the Holy Spirit sort of taking the helm and helping you find a place to live? Well, it seemed very unspiritual in church to say no. But you could also say, wait a minute. I mean, Bob down the street seems like, you know, he knows a lot about reality. Why do I need to go to the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit knows all the properties. Every property in all the universe, technically, he knows every parcel. Whereas Bob down the street, you know, just knows local Windsor. And so, I mean, if you really want to have all your options open to you, I mean, the Holy Spirit's a good option. Now, that's, that might be my way of duping you into getting the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit really does know what's best for you. Your short list of properties. So here's, like, the, imagine your realtor says, so could you give me a, a list of properties that you've really, you've looked at maybe online or you've visited in the past and you'd like something similar? And he's like, well, I'm sort of torn inside because 
I've been all over the world. I've traveled various places. There's just so many gorgeous spots. And so if I'm going to pick the perfect location, and money's no object. Uh, I mean, there's 484 oceanfront property in Barbados, 374 Mountain Chalet, Aspen, 264 Lakeside Mansion, New Hampshire, and 154 Vineyard Ranch, Napa Valley. Now, maybe this is my list. I'm not exactly sure. You would be like, those stink. Uh, However, you come up with your list of what would bring you comfort in this life. You think about it, and we have an idea of what would bring out the nuance and the beauty to life on this earth. And so I'm going to turn my life over to the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to say, Holy Spirit, you lead, you direct, you take me where only you can. Now, I don't know if you can sense sort of that edge to that prosperity gospel thinking here, is we all have a, a tendency in that direction. It's like we want the best of Jesus, but we also want the best of this world at the same time. Don't get us wrong. I mean, we'd, we're willing to give up the, the best of this world. God, you're not going to actually overhear that actual statement. To serve Jesus. I mean, because our priorities aren't the best of this world. But while we're at it, we might as well enjoy the best of this world. I mean, God created it, didn't he? Uh, why shouldn't I enjoy it? I mean, those are some good logic points. However, what I want us to focus on is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. We've turned our future over to him, and we said, all right, I want you to help me find the property. Introducing 44 Happily Ever After Lane. That wasn't even on your list. It's this little spot in Jerusalem in the midst of a war-torn area. Bomb blasts can be heard in the distance, and the Holy Spirit's saying, why don't you hop into my car, let's drive down the road, and, and I'll show you this location. And you get out, and you immediately look at each other, you know, husband, wife, and you're like, I don't think he read our list. And he goes, no, I I understand what you're after. You see, you're after something, and I put that desire there. However, you're after, you're trying to solve something the world's way. You see, I know actually what you need. And I I just want to show you this property. I, I, I do think it fits you very, very well. And he says, it's 44 happily ever after lane. And you look at this place and you're like, this is anything but happily ever after. This is die as soon as I move in lane. I mean, what, what, what is this? Bomb blasts everywhere. The little scrap of history. So, there's, you know, there's actually a history. This, this little chalet house, actually, it's, it's pretty stout. It's, I could even call it a castle or a mansion. So, but it, it's a really, I mean, there's certain attributes when you first see it. It's like, wow. But there's so many reasons why I don't want to move here. So I'm going to give you a little scrap of history to this place. There's a scripture in the Bible that actually describes the building and the construction of this location. It's really fascinating. How many houses do we actually have this type of history? Way back 2,000 years ago where one scripture actually describes the building of a house. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this house, speaking of the temple of God that was built in Jerusalem, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. So I know the students here at Ellerslie understand that when I talk about Jesus and I talk about believing in Christ, I actually talk about a real location. It's actually a place. It's a house. It is not just a concept, it is a very real dwelling place. The marketing company. Now, how in the world is God going to get anyone to move into this house? He builds it literally right smack in the middle of 
the most dangerous spot on earth. You know what took place in this exact location called the cross? An earthquake. I mean, we have the epicenter of an earthquake right here, right smack in the middle of 44 ever, happily ever after lane. And you're going to tell me that I want to build my future house, my life, on that type of fault line? You've got to be kidding. I mean, it Im- immediately diminishes the value to most of us. And so most of the connoisseurs of real estate are going to snub their nose at such a location. And the Holy Spirit basically is beckoning us to take a second look. I know what the flesh is thinking. I know what you originally and first instinct may think about this location. But let me talk with you a little about this. The marketing copy. This charming castle has a rich history. The architect and builder of this 2,000-year-old fortress handpicked this precise property in which to build his masterpiece. The massive mansion's red hue is purportedly derived from the actual blood of the original builder, who gave up his life in order to see this structure erected. The unique location is the epicenter of a gigantic earthquake that shook the Middle East near 2,000 years ago. The plot of land is considered by many to be the most dangerous place on Earth, but not one singular resident of this historic residence has ever lost his or her life. And without exception, every inhabitant of this estate throughout the centuries has told tales of supreme happiness and joy while living in this awesome war-torn structure. Stories of supernatural provision, protection, health, strength, and happiness fill the annals that have been dutifully kept by each resident that has lived out their days under the shadow of this fortress's amazing protection over the centuries. So could you imagine? He, He gives this little marketing copy, and you're hearing this, and you're like... How in the world? Of course, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you're immediately going to start questioning his data, too. You're like, what do you mean no one's died? What do you mean no one's actually been harmed? Well, I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, why don't you and your sweetie think about it? You know how they all do that? Like the car salesmen do that, too. I'm not exactly sure how they're trained, but there's something about the concept of talking to your sweetie about it that's supposed to get you to fall for it. And so the Holy Spirit sort of says, so think about it. Why don't you, why don't you talk this over? Oh, and there's one more little bitty piece of information. So he has this extra bit of information before you talk it over with your sweetie, before you make a final decision on this location. This may seem a bit strange to you, but it seems that the architect and builder of this mighty estate somehow knew about you when he coated the walls of this castle with his very own blood. For look right here, and he's holding out like some document. Isn't this amazing? The deed for this historic castle already has your name on it. It's yours for the taking. All of its supernatural strength, beautiful gardens, quiet lakeside spots, babbling brooks, and orchards of endless provision belong to you. You simply must accept this estate and all its ignominy and infamy as your own. And you must know that to enter through these magnificent bullet-riddled, scourged, spat-upon, blood-stained, earthquaked gates, you must say goodbye to all other future residences, be it oceanfront, scenic mountainside, lakeside hamlet, or vineyard romantic, forever and always." See, what we're talking about is the cross. We're talking about the shed blood of Jesus Christ. On the outside looking in, it looks like a battle-torn, blood-drenched, bullet-riddled, earthquaked facility. It's like, you've got to be kidding. There is no way I'm going to move in there. That's certain death. I'm surrounded by everyone that hates me. You cannot think of a more grotesque picture of a house than a cross. This is a place of suffering. This is a place of death. This is a place of criminal activity, criminal judgment, and wrath. You've got to be kidding. And yet, though it appears on the outside to be the most dangerous place on earth, 
It is, in fact, the safest place in all the heavenlies. Right there. A house was erected. It was built, and the door was unlocked. And on the deed, a very personal touch by God himself, he says, I put your name there even before you were born. I have chosen you. I have called you. This is to be your home. It's quite a stunning reality that, I mean, you could never afford such a place, even though some of you are wondering, why would I really want to even have such a place? And yet, what you hear the realtor say is he touches on something that, I don't know how to explain it, but he says something that even though you're staring at the, at the lumber, the, the, uh, the splintery wood and the, the, the blood, the suffering of it in one eye, in the other eye, you're able to see past that. And he says, the orchards are all yours with all their provision. The babbling brooks, uh, the meadows. And you're like, what? you don't see it necessarily, but you're believing it. You see, inside these walls, these bullet-riddled walls, is something that only those that are willing to forsake their life out here and enter will ever find. And it is something so utterly satisfying that you actually are considering it, even when he's walking off saying, talk it over with your sweetie. And you're thinking, even as you're you're thinking, my sweetie's definitely going to say no. But why am I strangely fascinated with this? It's like, let's not just throw this out quickly. I, I, I need to consider this. And as you turn, what you find is your sweetie looks back at you and is thinking the same thing. And you're like, you, you actually are pondering this too? I don't know if any of you have ever felt that in your Christian walk. Like, I must be an idiot. I am actually excited to do something that everyone in my life thinks is insane. Oh, that's my life, by the way. I've felt that many, many times. And I felt it, you know, very recently. I, this is not just a one-time thing. This is an ongoing thing in my life where the more I serve Jesus, the more I realize I don't think like the world. I don't know if any of you have ever had that. I get it every now and then. I mean, and I, it's an acute sense of displacement. Like, I don't belong down here. I don't know where I'm at, but I don't fit in anywhere. I feel like everyone thinks differently. And I am this anomaly in the system and somehow I've survived somehow I get along but I don't think like this world the world is becoming more and more opposite of the way I think so it's like I could almost say whatever they're thinking over there I could almost guess that I'll think the exact opposite if the media says this I could tell you without even hearing what they're going to say that I would have a completely different conclusion it's like ha what's happened to me why have I become like this and that's exactly what you begin to think even as you're looking at this and everyone around scorns and spits upon the outside of the wall as they walk by. It's a spitting wall. And you're looking at the same wall and you're suddenly seeing a pearly gate. And you're like, there's some value here. This thing will never lose its value. This thing has stood strong for 2,000 years in the midst of a war-torn place with bomb blasts constantly and it's never actually been moved. Huh. And you begin to see something that no one around you sees. How are you seeing it? It's the realtor you're with. See, that crazy realtor has done something to you. He's messing with you, isn't he? Suddenly you're looking at this shoddy piece of property thinking it's all good. He's duped you. Or has he? Or is he actually your helper, helping you see something of value that otherwise you wouldn't see? Oh, by the way, if you want to enter these gates... You say goodbye 
to any other residence forever and always. Well, that's a, that's a pretty strong little caveat to throw in there when I'm trying to make a choice here. However, you're still considering it, aren't you? I want what's in this place. I, I know the world thinks this is crazy, but there's some strange magnetic pull. I must have it. You see, it's different than just knowing that you could have orchards and green grass inside of this. It's the pull of the intimate affections of God Almighty. You see, he lives there. There, You see, there's more to this than just property. There's more to this than walls and orchards. It's the person of God that is wooing us to this location. Newlywed bliss. So when you look at this place, when you first come to Christ, you oftentimes have an enunciation or an emphasis on certain attributes of 44 happily ever after lane. It's the place of rescue. This is where you were saved. You were saved from all the bomb blasts out there. You thought that Barbados or Aspen could save you, but actually you are vulnerable in every location but right here. This is the safest place in all the universe. It's called the blood of Jesus. So it's the place of rescue. It's the place of eternal living. When you enter in here, you live. It's, it's a resurrection life. This is where life is found. It's the place of victory. No longer does sin have any dominion over you, but actually there is a strength, even a legal authoritative strength to command it to go. This is amazing stuff. It's the place of peace. Never have you had peace in your entire life. Even though you're in the midst of a war-torn, bomb-blasted environment, guess what? You've never known peace. It's like Jesus with the, 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 the waters are rising in the boat and he's asleep. That's the opposite of what we would do, and yet that's exactly what this is. The waters are rising around us in this life, and yet we're with Jesus. And he says, yeah, I have a bed for you right over here. Come in and sleep. It was like they're, they're attacking. Do you hear the sirens outside? He goes, yeah, this is the time when we go to sleep. It's like, what a strange reality you've entered into. You actually can be calm when the world around you is in crisis. Well, such is the makeup of this incredible home. It's the place of joy. I mean, many of us have longed. I remember one of my New Year's resolutions when I was uh, newly married with Leslie because I recognized I was struggling with frustration and some of the weights and the issues I was dealing with because I'm a happy guy, always been a happy guy. But God had to transfer my happiness from a personality thing to a spiritual thing. It's like I'm inclined to be happy, which is a nice feature. But as long as I was, it was a personality thing, it eroded away. And I found myself starting to get grumpy. And I remember saying, New Year's resolution, I'm going to have peace and joy this year. Well, it's not that easy. You don't just decide to have peace and joy. It's like, I'm going to whip this up because that's the way I thought about the fruit of the Spirit. It's like, okay, God, I'm going to do this for you. This is the evidence that you're working in my life. Well, I'm going to show it to you. See this? It didn't come out right. It sort of came out sideways and upside down. It's like, Leslie could look at me, so that's your peace and joy. (laughs) Well, at least I'm trying. You see, I couldn't get it in my own strength. But when I finally entered in and, and recognized, he supplied it for me. It's in the house that I began to enjoy its beauty and its luster. And so the newlywed bliss, there's a certain sparkle to marriage that when you first get married, you first say, I do, it, that is truly remarkable. And what follows is oftentimes what people would say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, the honeymoon ends, doesn't it? I hate that attitude, by the way, because a lot of people could say the same thing about Christianity. 
Oh, yeah, joy of salvation, sure. I remember those days, but then you hit reality. No, what you hit is you hit the same thing that you walked into the beginning, and that is that there's bomb blasts outside. You see, you've entered into the center, the epicenter of an earthquake. You've entered into the epicenter of the eternal battles here. They all center on this house, and you've chosen it as your residence. So unless you know that, you oftentimes are taken off guard. So the whole point of what I'm building here is to understand that newly wedded bliss oftentimes sets us up to be shocked, soul-shocked, when it comes to the true environment we've entered into. You see, just as much as this is true, which, by the way, doesn't need to end after a week or two long honeymoon. This is forever and always. However, there's another dimension to this location that we've entered into. And so this is full disclosure. The Holy Spirit says, look, I just want to be completely open and honest with you. And so he lays it out, all the small print. Uh, is in there. In fact, in the Bible, it's actually not small print at all. It's large lettering. It's also known as the place of suffering. So the Holy Spirit is saying, I just want you to know that, yes, this is an incredible location, but just know this is the place of suffering. It's called the cross. It's the place of mockery. It's the place of difficulty. It's the place of war. It's the place of agony. Well, who, if you know that, if you have full disclosure, aren't you just going to walk away? No way. I'm not about to go in there. Well, you could say that, not necessarily the same exact terms about marriage, about family. When you enter into family or marriage, what you've entered into is a war zone. It is a heightened sense of spiritual attack. And if you are not prepared for it, you go down. If that's all you have, you can't survive. But you need to remember that this is always, it is ever-present And so you need to understand the nature of the battle you've entered into. You've entered into an epicenter. You've entered into a struggle. But it's not that you don't have the grace for it. You actually do. And so I just want you to think about that, you newly wedded uh, man or woman here that has your sweetie at your side. The Holy Spirit is saying, all right, in this new covenant relationship, are you in or out? Do you want this as your living quarters? Because God will supply you everything you need to thrive in this location known as Jesus Christ. But you need to understand, this is not the easy life. This is a life, well, let me go through the list again. It is also known as the place of suffering, the place of mockery, the place of difficulty, the place of war, the place of agony. Are you willing to call this dangerous place home? Now, just so you know, it's not an issue for me. I I call this place home. And I'm, I will boldly call this place home. I understand what comes with it. I've experienced what comes with it. And I love my life. I truly am living in on 44, happily ever after lane. I love life. Is it easy? Oh, no. But it is full of Jesus Christ. And that makes it truly everything to me. Are you willing to sell all other property and move here to this place? Are you willing to throw away everything that can't coexist in this divine and heavenly home? I mean, you just happen to be walking into a divine and heavenly home. Anything that doesn't fit the divine and heavenly home can't come in with you. What? I mean, there's a lot of stipulations. If you read the disclaimer on this, it's like, what? This is serious business. Yeah, your deed's on the property, but to obtain the property, it's sort of like you have to repent of all your old life and leave it and forsake it so you can enter the gates here and live the way you ought to live. 
Are you willing to move into a place where the sound of war will be the background score to your life? Just ponder that one. You could take that one, stick it up on your refrigerator and ponder it for a month straight. Are you willing to move into a place where the sound of war will be the background score to your life? Are you willing to choose the ignominy that is associated with this location? For those of this earth call those that dwell here fools, idiots, the off-scouring of the world, refuse, garbage, ignorant, small-minded, intellectually inferior. Are you willing to fall in love with this place, cherish it as your eternal dwelling and covenant to never leave, whether in sickness or in health, whether living in plenty or in want, and whether amidst bomb blasts or the cooing of turtle doves? Whatever the circumstances, whatever the ease or discomfort, are you willing to enter into covenant with this place? Because it's called a covenant in his blood. It's called the new covenant. Are you willing to say, whether in sickness or in health, I don't care whether it's in plenty or in want. It makes no difference. I've entered and here I live. I understand what comes with it. I have all the bounty of heaven and I have all the antagonistic fervor of the world against me. Huh. I like the odds. See, we have God. That is why we choose it. And it's not just God in concept, God in theory, it's God in person. He is truly our bridegroom. He is our shepherd. He is our father. He is our protector. He is the actual walls around the estate. 44 happily ever after Lane is a person. And we choose a person. Though that person be spat upon, though that person have uh, wounds in his flesh, proving his sufferings, we choose to enter into that person knowing full well the ignominy and the mockery that is sure to follow. Are you willing to make the epicenter of the most dangerous earthquake in universal history your dwelling place? Jesus, a strange place to call home. So where do you live? I live in Jesus. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense if we were to say it that way. However, you see, I, I also have an address here in this world. I do live in Windsor, Colorado in an actual wood-structured home. And yet, I have a true dwelling, and it's an eternal dwelling, and my spirit actually dwells there. I am seated in heavenly places in Christ. I am in that address. And so truly, spiritually speaking, where he goes, I go. That is my home. Saying yes to the blood-stained residence. When you say yes to this residence, I, I recognize it can be a little scary, but one of the things that I'm a big proponent of is full disclosure of how the gospel works. And so one of the things that you know, people might be concerned about Eric Ludi with is the fact that I say too much to someone who doesn't believe. Because if you really want them to believe, Eric, you can't tell them about all the bomb blasts. You can't say all this other stuff. And I would say the reason Jesus says every time the gospel will be preached, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memorial of her is because it's the essence of how we communicate the gospel to someone else. You want Jesus? You give up your spike nard. You give up your life as you now know it to find life in him. To me, that's our response, our proper response to the good news. When we hear the good news, we hear of Mary of Bethany. Not, not because we have to hear of her actual name in some box of spike nard, we hear the same commission that Mary of Bethany walked out. And in memorial of what she did, we respond in like manner. The short description of life in Jesus. Okay, now, 
let, let's walk in through the gate together. Oh, this is so amazing. I, I know many of you in here have walked through this gate, but you've said yes to Jesus. And you literally walk in and you go from seeing some gray structure with one eye and yet seeing this color, seeing this, this life, this hope with the other eye. The spirit eye, flesh eye. And so you close that eye and you're like trying to squint and it's like, what's, what is this that I'm headed into? Well, then you begin to see it. Your experience begins to actually take shape around this. And what do you see? Well, I'm going to describe it for you. Flowery meadows. I mean, who would have guessed that right in the middle of this war-torn territory, it's all gray outside, and right here is like flowery meadows, clear blue sky, birds chirping, jeep, 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 freedom to run. It's like out there, you, you never had, you couldn't be a child and just run, but in here, it's like there's a childlike freedom to worship, to dance, to sprint, to, uh, to skip. You guys skip? Some of the guys in here are like, no, we don't skip. <laughs> There's like this bubbling brook that goes through the middle, and I can't skip hardly at all, but you can skip over it, and it's like, it's an amazing spot. Fun-shaped clouds floating through the sky. Have you ever seen fun-shaped clouds? Like there's boring clouds that can go by, but those fun-shaped clouds that have like real shape, they're defined, and you sit there all day and can say, that looks like such and such, that looks like such and such. Uh-huh, there's tons of them, and they're always going by, yet they never block the sun. A babbling brook, of course. I mean, of course that's going to be there. A family of fluffy St. Bernard puppies that lives just, north, just to the north among the hydrangeas. Huge bunch of hydrangeas over here. And the puppies like live underneath, and you can visit them anytime you want. And they're just as cute as they ever were. They'll roll over, and then they'll you know, chew on the bone. And uh, the, the McConaughey's just got a baby St. Bernard puppy. Wait till you guys see it. So that's where that inspiration came from. So it's St. Bernard puppies. A family of declawed and tamed baby koalas bears to the south. Hey, I didn't put them there. They're just there, okay? They're there to, I mean, this is, this is the dreamland. The child in us comes to life. This is, this is something special. This is a new life in Christ. Something has been set free in here. And we return to a place of childlikeness where we begin to look up to the heavenlies and we say, Abba, Papa, Daddy. And there's a freedom in our soul. It's a cleanness to the air. Where there was pollution before, there's now a, a fresh smell of flowers and, and just the, the fresh air. There's a difference. You've just never known it before. You didn't know air could be so pure, so clean. You didn't know water could be so clean. You didn't know dogs could be so cute. Everything is beautiful to you. You've been born anew, and so everything has a sparkle to it. You look around. Have, have, have any of you ever gotten like contacts or glasses for the first time? And you're like driving down the road, and you're like, I I can see the letter R in that sign. I can see the leaves on the tree. I've had these, these moments. Well, that's sort of what it's like on steroids, though. In other words, so much more. A changed life. The quotes that are sure to be heard echoing within your soul. When you first walk through this gate, something changes inside of you, and you are tasting of something. I want to explain what it is. It is the Holy Spirit, but it's love. Love is actually affecting you in a way that before this you haven't understood. And so here's some common quotes. I love life. I love everyone. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my boss. 
I love my job. This job that you were just complaining about yesterday and said you hated. I love my job. I have a job. I love it. I love my temperamental fridge. I even love my cranky neighbor's fence that he built over on my side of the property line. Thank you, fence. It reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life, you know, where he comes right. That's very similar to what it's like. There's a transformation. You're seeing life with a new lens. Some of you have tasted this. You've tasted the sweetness of the meadow. You've tasted the sweetness of the chirping birds. And yet, as I say this, you feel like it's a distant memory. And yet you're in Christ. Right now you're like, wait a minute, wait, I went through those walls. What is wrong? Why do you think I've given this message? This is a huge buildup for just one key concept. You see, I want to teach you how the enemy works. And when you understand how the enemy works, you'll understand that this territory is not supposed to be marred or ever lose its beauty and its innocence. You see, you're a Christian, and you have walls about you. However, if you leave the gate open and you invite in the enemy, well, you know... You lose the luster and the beauty and the loves in life. Suddenly, things start irritating you again. You know, you started loving your wife afresh. You're like, she's just so beautiful. It's like a a second honeymoon. It's like, this is amazing. And then the next thing you know, she's getting under your skin again. What happened? You see, does the Christian life continue or does it have spurts? Does it have eruptions of beauty and then we sort of go back to live like everyone else? You see, you're in the midst of a battle. You're in the midst of a, an entanglement with the devil, and you must know your weaponry, and you must know how to live in this house. The surprise attack on 44 Happily Ever After Lane. And I call it a surprise attack because most of us aren't ready for it. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in this house, in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. See, you weren't prepared for that. So when something hits your house or that bomb blast strikes the wall and it shakes you, you weren't prepared for it. And as a result, the devil's going to play you like a violin. The owner's manual for 44, happily ever after, lame. Don't just throw it in the glove box and forget about it. You ever, some of us have uh, owner's manuals for our cars and we've never once, except for that one time we needed to figure out how to get the overhead light on, we actually have never taken it out of the glove box. If you do that, With the owner's manual for this uh, environment, you die. There's a reason why God gave it to you, and it's not just like your car's owner manual. It is a living book that wants to instruct you in how to engage in this place. You're in a very dangerous spot. You better know how to live there. You have an enemy. One of the number one things you're going to see in this, it's like, uh, have you ever had one of those computer things where they give you like a big yellow sheet when you first open the box? And I even want to set the yellow sheet aside, but they make it so big, like big lettering, like do this first, because they know people like me are like, I don't want to read the directions. I just want to do it. And so they're like, make sure. Well, that's the way God's owner's manual is. It's sort of like, hey, you have an enemy. Don't take it lightly. Yes, you have a rescuer, but you have an enemy. I will be your protection. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, but don't take it lightly. As Hudson Taylor says, the first step downward, he talks about the seven steps downward to hell, the seven steps upward to heaven. The first step downward, taking sin lightly. Acting like there really isn't an enemy. There's really no issue. There's no flack in this life. That's all an over-exaggeration. You take sin lightly. You trifle with sin. You say, that that doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. You die. 
It's the first step towards erosion in your spiritual life. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Understanding the enemy's game. Well, there's various things that I could put here. I'm going to put four. Soul control. Of course, he wants to control you. He does this in all sorts of ways. That's through the flesh. Soul delusion. He wants to lie to you. He wants you to think that you're just fine the way you are. You're that frog in ever-increasing heated water. You know, the water's getting hotter and hotter, and you don't notice the difference. He's deluded you into thinking you're fine. And, of course, this is just the enemy's game. Soul compromise. He wants to bait you to compromise your soul, to create... Uh, inconsistencies which create shame barriers in your life. There's all sorts of tactics the enemy has. He's very good at it. He's been doing it for thousands of years and you've been living for hmm, not many. In other words, he knows better than you do how your life works. He is a student of the human race. He understands its weaknesses very well, but he also knows the one thing he cannot contend with and that is truth. However, if you don't understand that, and you try and contend with something other than the word of God, you will lose this battle. The one I want to focus on right now is called soul shock. The enemy has a tactic, and it's it's like the blast. You see, he may rock your house with an earthquake or with a bomb blast, and it actually doesn't impair the walls or any of the interior uh, stuff. I mean, your couch didn't really get affected. Your walls, the plaster on the walls are still fine. However... You weren't expecting it. And as a result, that shaking actually causes a shaking inside of your soul that causes you to give way to something in that the enemy is wanting. And this is where I want you to be wise. The devil's game of human manipulation, the soul shock tactic. Now, in previous messages, I've gone through how the enemy works in twos. And I went through this in a far greater way, but I don't have time for that today. I'm just going to talk about one soul shock tactic. The enemy oftentimes will come in twos. He'll hit you from two sides. And he wants you to think that one of the sides is you speaking or the Spirit of God speaking, while the other one might be the enemy speaking. He doesn't mind you knowing that there's an enemy, but he doesn't want you to realize that this voice also is an enemy too. So he's going to hit you from two sides at once. And this is called the hit and bait technique. That's just what I call it. The job of the hitman. So one guy is assigned the hit job. Okay, so he's going to go, you ever heard of good cop, bad cop? Well, that's sort of what we could almost call it the invention of the devil. You see, if he can make one voice sound really mean, then the other voice actually sounds really nice and trustworthy in comparison. And so one of the things the enemy will do is uh, the hit and uh, bait technique. The job of the hitman, hit him as hard as you can, as brutally as you can, and as spitefully as you can. Show no mercy and be as unjust and as disrespectful as you can get away with. And what does the bait man do? The bait man comes in as the good cop, and he says, oh, Whoa, I, I can't believe that. He, that behavior, you didn't deserve that. The moment the hitman hits, the bait man whispers, that is unjust. That is not right. Defend yourself. Rise up and make this right. For the sake of your reputation, argue. Be mad. Be angry at this unsavory, disrespectful hit at your reputation. You see, the Christian manual, owner's manual for 44, happily ever after lane, is very specific of how you should handle that hit. And yet, if you listen to the bait in that moment, you compromise your very position in Christ and the strength and the virtue of Christ's protection. You go rogue. You go against his clear command and make yourself vulnerable. 
Proper preparations for life at 44 or happily ever after lane. A couple pieces of advice as you step forward into the ancient blood-stained castle. Number one, do not be soul-shocked. As a simple rule of thumb, the enemy's going to try and, try and come in and shake you. Recognize when that bomb blast comes, there's going to be another voice that will come. You need to be on guard. Fix your stance and be ready for the hit. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, the bomb blasts, the bullets hitting the outside of your wall, which is to try you as though something strange, as, as some strange thing happened to you. This is not strange. It is not strange to have bomb blasts. It's not strange to have bullets riddling the outside of your wall. This is Christianity. So when you consider it strange, the enemy has an advantage. And that is why you must understand how this battle works. Number two, be armed with the necessary weaponry. So the two clear ideas in scripture are be ready and be armed. Everything you need has been given you. So if you know the battle's coming, you get into position. You know, I use the illustration with the men sometimes. I say, stand, stand up. And so one of them will stand up, and I come up, and I shove him in the, in the chest, and he falls back. I'm like, wait, he wasn't ready. What, what, what's this? What a terrible posture. If you knew I was coming, you'd be completely different in your posture, wouldn't you? If you knew I was going to come up and push your chest, well, the next time I say, stand up, what does he do? What the? It's like, there's no way I'm going to be embarrassed in front of this crowd of guys again. And so you actually brace yourself or you position yourself for battle. That is the concept. When we talk about in the Old Testament, the, the war cry of Rock Hasak, that's exactly what it is. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and in position, ready to hit. You see, you are in a battle. And if you know that, then you stand in position ready. You understand, you don't focus on the enemy, but you're always in a ready position. If you're one of the 10 virgins, you have oil in your lamp. You are always prepared. And the second is, be armed with the necessary weaponry. That's the oil. You have the armament. You have the sword in hand. You never set it down. You never let it go. You always have your weaponry. And our weaponry is known as grace. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, we are always dwelling in this temple. We are always in Christ. That's where we live. So we have instant access to this grace for help in time of need. Do you have a time of need? Well, you do. Especially when the enemy hits you on the outside. Grace is our secret. And we have access to all we could possibly need. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. For whatever reason, we as Christians are weak. I know it sounds really strange, but that's in the natural sense. In the earthly eyesight, we are weak. We're in this blood-stained castle in the most dangerous spot on earth, and everyone in their right mind would say, get out of there. Run for your life. And yet, we actually, in that weakened state, are stronger than anyone else on earth. We have something in that weakened state that no one else has access to, and that is grace. The very power-enabling strength of God to equip us to live, to act, to think, to behave as he would in our bodies. We have access to it. And so in every situation, someone bonks us in the nose, hits the outside of our wall, the inside, there's actually a reservoir of grace that rises up to say, I just want you to know how much I love you. That is unearthly, by the way, and yet it's very Christian. We as Christians have access to something in this house. 
And so when the bomb blast hit, if you don't know what is in the cellar, if you don't know what's in the armory, if you don't know it, you don't have it in your grip, and you don't go and get it in the time of need, then it's useless. You have it, but you're not wielding it. And the enemy wants to take advantage of your ignorance. You see, he doesn't want you to know about what's in Christ. You may have gotten into Christ, and he does, he's disgusted by that, by the way. He's not happy at all. But then the next step is to make sure you're not knowledgeable about what you have access to in Christ. That's sly, devil. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And do not give the devil an opportunity. This is one of those famous quotes growing up for Eric Ludy. My mom would always quote it. And I was so afraid of the sun going down uh, because I didn't want to give the devil an opportunity in my life. And I mean, oh, my, my mental picture of it was the devil's just sort of sitting there. And if I didn't make something right before the sun dropped behind the horizon, then the devil sort of goes into my life, and suddenly it's like, Eric goes, and I mean, this is scary, it's like my dad also told me that if I stuck my finger into the Kentucky Fried Chicken container when we were driving home, a crab would bite it off. <laughs> I'd look in there, we'd take it off, there's no crab, it's like, how does that work? Uh, so there can, there's certain superstition dimensions that we can easily blend into Christianity, however, there's still a truth there, not the crab, uh, <laughs> but there's still a truth in the fact that if you harbor anger, if you do not properly address it in your life the way God has prescribed, this means in the moment you know to do it. Before the sun goes down that very day, you deal with it today. That's the concept. Don't be afraid of a sun going up or down. The concept is today. As long as it is called today, do it. This is the day in which you make it right. So if you have been offended, if there is anger, if there is whatever, you make it right today. And what's the reason? Oh, we do not want to give the devil an opportunity. Well, the Bible doesn't just say this once. This is actually a concept. To whom you forgive, says Paul, anything, I forgive also. For, I forgave it any, for, I, for if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I in the person of Christ. Why? Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. And listen to his statement here. For we are not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of what he's trying to do here, people. We know what he's up to. He's trying to compromise the estate. So therefore, we forgive. We actually do what we know to do. We allow the grace of God to handle those atrocities and those bomb blasts and those bullets that are being shot at us. We respond properly the way the grace of God would instruct us, the way the Holy Spirit has trained us. Lest Satan take advantage of us. You see, there is a breakdown that comes in the Christian life when we walk in disobedience, and the enemy knows that. Why do you think he's trying to compromise Eve? You see, what he wants is for Eve to go against the clear word of God. So the enemy wants to compromise our estate. We have the grace of God, and even if we sin, we have a mediator in Christ, and we can immediately see that wall repaired. However, one of the ways the enemy works is, if I could describe it this way, we have a wall around our, our property, and he's looking for breaches or breakdowns in the wall that he can slip through. You see, to go against a gate that's locked is not very easy. But if he can get a compromise in the wall, well, then he can just sneak through. Now, the way the enemy works is a lot of different tactics. One of them, we could call it the hand grenade tactic, where he sees a little gap, and then he notifies you know, all those that are on his team and he says, all right, we got it. And so he, he takes his, you know, pulls the pin out of the hand grenade, rolls it into our life, steps out, and then <laughs> something happens in our life that is a result of our disobedience. 
It's not a result of God. It's a result of our disobedience. And then the first thing we hear is, can you believe God did that to you? He's trying to turn us against our very Savior. He's trying to mar the very nature of our God. It is actually us that are participating in a wayward fashion. If you plant thistle seeds in your backyard, what do you get? You start to get thistle. The same is true with any disobedience. You begin to breed the crop or the fruit of that which you are doing. It does not mean that you do not have access into the blood of Christ and the throne room of grace. It just means the enemy is manipulating your Christian life. I'm not even going to say it's not a Christian life. I'm going to say he's manipulated and taking advantage of you. Paul is talking to Christians. So he's saying, may we not allow the enemy to take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The other way you could look at it is the enemy will sneak in through the wall. He's going to act all nonchalant about it, sort of like he's looking at his watch, just sort of hanging out. And if you happen to catch him, you're like, hey. And he goes, oh, sorry, this is not my territory. Oh, yeah, I didn't know. You see, he wants to sneak in and start to do what we could call squatting. He has no rights, no legal territorial rights to your soul. However, if you open a gate or open a door and do not exert the authority you have in Jesus Christ, he'll take territory. He doesn't have any right to it, but he'll still take it. So he'll move in and look at his fingernails for a bit. Notice that you don't recognize that he's taken advantage of you. And so he'll set up a little tent for the night, build a little campfire there, and we can call it a toehold. He has a little hold on your life, and you don't even realize it. A toehold undealt with quickly will become a foothold, and he's going to build a little house, put a little clothesline there and hang his dirty clothes up after he you know, washes them and he's letting them dry. And then he's just going to start building a wall around it. And he's going to start building a little city. It becomes a foothold, which then becomes a stronghold. Now, I want you to know that to kick out a foothold and to kick out a stronghold is the same thing as a Christian. In the name of Jesus, out. It's that simple. However, the effects of a toehold compared to a stronghold are very different. In other words, you can eliminate it right now in the authority of the name of Jesus, whether it's big or small. However, an untended and undealt with stronghold will actually begin to destroy every relationship in your life, starting with your own relationship with God. You cannot allow these things to remain, which is why you must know how to live at 44 Happily Ever After Lane. So the very last line was, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I don't know if I can say the same thing to the modern church. Or maybe we really are ignorant of his devices. Do we actually know how the enemy works? I I don't know that we do. God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. This is a simple principle of how God works. Pride he resists. Humility he receives. Well, did you know that this principle of God actually being restrained or being unable to help someone. Like the proud, he cannot help the proud. Unless you humble yourselves, he cannot rescue you. Unless you become his little children, dependent, he cannot rescue you. It's not that he's ill-equipped and unable, he's God. However, his economy of rescue hinges on these things. His grace, it's sort of like a pipeline, and it's the pipeline of grace. And there's a little spigot on it, and you've turned it off. So the scripture could read, I give grace to those who recognize their need for my grace and open up the spigot and say, come in, Lord. But I can't give grace to those who close off the spigot. And you could say, how rude that God would do that. And he would select those that open the spigot as opposed to those that close it. No, he's saying this is how it works. If you humble yourself and recognize need and acknowledge that you need what God has, you receive it. However, if you say, I don't need what God has, I'm sufficient in and of myself, you will not receive the grace. 
Follow me? It's just a principle. So I'm going to add a little something to it. This is error. I didn't put a scripture reference to this because this isn't a scripture reference. However, it is. It's what the Bible says. God resists the unforgiving, but gives grace unto the forgiving. You want the grace of God. If you don't forgive, do you know it's the equivalent of tightening down the spigot? It's saying, God, I'll do this on my terms. I don't need your grace in my life. Because his grace, one of its primary attributes is forgiveness. Is love. It's the expressions of kindness, mercy, long-suffering. You see, if you close that off, in, the, in that willpower of yours, or the enemy has spiked the punch in your life, and you're like, no. What happens is the grace of God is cut off in your life. Suddenly, that grace that saves you, that grace for help in time of need, is no longer there. And you find yourself thin. You find yourself vulnerable to other temptations. A breakdown in the arena of forgiveness actually leads to a breakdown in every other area because you're cutting off the helping hand of God. You are cutting off and turning off the grace flow in your life. Don't, 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 don't do this. Don't do this, Christians. Let us not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. He is attempting to thwart your life. You didn't bring the, the bomb blast. You didn't bring the bullets against yourself. That was someone else's sin. And yet you are allowing someone else's behavior to destroy you. And we as Christians are meant to be untouchables. Which means whatever the enemy has designed, God always turns it to good. It always deflects and it actually increases the grace within us. God, the enemy cannot actually snuff out our life. Oh, he can affect our bodies. There's all sorts of sufferings we can face while living at 44 happily ever after lane. But he can never actually touch our life. No one ever dies at 44 happily ever after lane because our life is hidden in Christ and we will live forever with him. We've already had our first death, but the second death has no sting over us. And forgive us our debts. Listen to this statement. This is Jesus talking, by the way, giving the sample prayer. As we forgive our debtors. So let grace flow through my life as I allow grace to flow into others' lives. So if you have cut off grace to others' lives, you're basically saying, God, let grace come into my life the way I'm handing out grace to others. Well, what if you're not handing out grace to others? Then the grace is stopping in your life. For if you forgive men their trespasses, their bomb blasts, their bullets... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Uh-oh, I, I don't know if I should read this out loud. I mean, should I? This is some intense stuff. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. If you close off that pipeline of grace that is flowing to others, God has given you grace so that you can be a flow-through channel to give it out. But the moment you clog that pipeline and say, no, is the moment that that pipeline is clogged to you. You see, God doesn't want to do this. It's not that God's like, oh yeah, I'll get you back. He's saying the principle of my grace and how it works is through obedience and through humility. You do not sin, I cannot prosper. So if you stand in rebellion against my water flow, against my grace flow, it actually will kill you. Allow it to flow through you. The dangerous mishandling of grace. This will be our last story before we take a break. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Until seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy-seven times. Which is the equivalent of saying, forever. What if Peter comes up to him and says, uh, so I did it, seventy-seven times. Jesus would say, seventy-seven times seven, seventy-seven billion. Whatever you need to hear, Peter, to understand there's no limit. 
Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Which, by the way, is like Warren Buffett's fortune. This is such a massive amount. Maybe it's like Warren Buffett's fortune and Bill Gates combined. It is such an astronomical, absurd number. How in the world does this guy borrow that much money? I, I can't explain. However, that's what his account shows. You owe me 10,000 talents. You owe me billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. No man in his lifetime could ever work it up. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Whoa, 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 whoa. He forgave that? You see, some of you have a tough time understanding the forgiveness of God. This story is a profound picture of how God forgives. He's forgiving such an astronomical, absurd thing. And the man simply asks. He humbles himself and requests. And we have a God of all grace. We have a God that forgives. I mean, it truly is astounding what we see. And this is the way the kingdom of heaven is like. This is its nature. Now, follow through, because the entire nature of the kingdom of heaven is going to be revealed here. And it's not just that God forgives. It's showing that flow-through channel and that spigot. But the same servants, this is the one that was just forgiven this astronomical amount, went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. A few pennies. I mean, comparison, this is laugh out loud. Jesus is making a distinction between values here. He's saying this man was forgiven such a massive debt. This man owed this servant that was just forgiven 10,000 talents. He's owed pennies, a hundred pence. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owes. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then this Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, this is the one that was forgiven the great debt, but didn't allow that grace to flow through his life. O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desired me. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth. And delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. How do you think he's going to pay that back when turned over to the tormentors? It's going to be eternal, won't it? 10,000 talents? You try and pay that back when you're being tormented day and night. You can't. It's an eternal torment. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Wow. That's how the kingdom of heaven works. You see, God has given us grace. However, if we close the spigot, we open the spigot for ourselves. We're like, oh God, wash me in your grace. Heal me, cleanse me, build me strong. But if we don't allow that spigot to go out, that flow to go out, then the spigot gets turned off at the source and it starts thinning us out. And no longer do we have that life-giving substance. God says the key for my grace to work in your life is for you to allow it to flow through. Love, don't just receive my love, give my love. 
Don't just receive my mercy, give my mercy. Don't just receive my patience, give my patience. Don't just receive my forgiveness, give my forgiveness. If you don't, it literally blocks my ability to serve you. I have grace for you, children. But don't let the enemy con you. He has a plan, and it's a sneaky one, that sly devil. So in this next session, we're going to go through how we guard this territory. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.